welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. Although important to a whole host of musical genres, there's no doubt that the violin is at the heart of classical music, rising to prominence as an orchestral instrument in the 18th century and becoming the soloist in some of the 19th century's most beloved concertos and sonatas. However, it's also an instrument that's seen a lot of change in how it's played, not only in the 500 years that it's been made, but also in the 100 or so years that it's been recorded. So on the show today, we'll be taking a look at the art of violin playing by listening to two contrasting performances of four famous pieces from the violin repertoire in recordings spanning the years from 1909 all the way to 2021. The violin, of course, known as one of the most elegant and refined contributions to civilization, two qualities I'm pleased to say are possessed in abundance by today's guest. Charlotte Gardner is a contributor to two fine publications, specialising in strings and the Baroque for gramophone, and also contributes to the Strad, the leading magazine for string players. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Thank you very much. What an introduction. <laughs> I hope I live up to that. <laughs> Aside from writing about violin performance, do you have your own fiddler's tale? Well, yes, I suppose I do. Um, violin was one of my instruments. Um, I started it when I was about eight and I played it fairly seriously up until the end of school and then I got to university and other things took over um, along the journalism lines of journalism. But um, yes, I love my violin and I do still play and I've just started picking it up again recently. There's a wonderful app called Nomad Play and you can pick any recording on the app. It'll You can pick what, say, so for example, it's a symphony. You can say, right, I want to play the second violins, whereas for me, I'm going to be at the back of the second violins at the moment. And you, it'll give you the score for the second violins. It will remove the second violins from the recording. And you can play along as a second violin in, you know, Mozart 40. And it's like you're in an orchestra with people to play along with at home. So I've been getting back into my violin playing with this, with this app at home lately. A virtual conductor as well, then? Yeah. It's marvellous. They, they don't stop when I play a wrong note, which is sometimes a bit problematic, but, but it's good fun. Well, as we did with pianists, we begin with Bach and repertoire that our first violin is called the Himalayas, the sonatas and partitas of solo violin. If that's the case, then the great Chacon that ends the second partita is undoubtedly Everest. Here it's performed by the legendary Romanian violinist and composer George Inescu in 1949. Charlotte, I found an edginess to this performance that perhaps reflects Inescu's struggles with arthritis at the time it was made late in his career. What are the technical challenges you need to become a great violinist? And is being a great virtuoso a young person's game? 
<laughs> well, where to start? Well, first of all, do you know what? I'm going to start with why I just love this recording so much. Um, this recording was actually brought to me by the violinist Vilda Frank. Anescu is her favourite violinist. And, and I had never even heard of it. She said, you just have to go and listen to this recording. And she was right. And I can still remember sat, sitting at my desk, listening to it for the first time. And I was just blown away by it. I think I actually winked out some tears. And and you're right. I mean, you can hear. I mean, technically, he's not. It, it's problematic in some senses, isn't it? I mean, first of all, the sound quality is very early days. Um, and it's worse, actually, than other recordings made around that time. And, you know, he's he's not hitting every single note square on, let's face it. Um, and so there's an adjustment period as you're trying to get your ears around it. But very very soon your ears have adjusted and you're there and you're being blown away by it and and what it is is this there's this wonderful album you mentioned he was Romanian and he had this Romanian folk background um and you hear that in in the bite it's big and he's playing this Bach as though it's his music and of course that's another thing we can discuss later on about how you approach a piece of music um but in terms of you know why he was playing like that at the time you know whether virtuosity is a young person's game i i think that it depends what you mean by virtuosity because i think that particularly these days um virtuosity is isn't just about playing fast if it ever was about playing fast now yes he's not hitting every single note bang on but it's i would say that virtuosity these days isn't so much about technique in technique virtuosity anyway it's not so much about how fast you can make your left fingers go it's about the right hand it's all about the right hand um because there's just so much and, and this is this ultimately i think is why he is able to move us to that degree with such wonderful architecture and just a feel of flow even though he's not quite there it's because the shoulder the arm the elbow the wrist the bow hold those are all there. And ultimately, that is what moves. And it's interesting when I sit in masterclasses or when I watch a young artist performing and something's just feeling a bit laboured, it, it's the right arm that's the problem. It's not the left hand. And, you know, I'll see people giving a lesson and they'll say, you know, you've got to sort out, you know, the stiffness here. Um, you've got to get to the point at which the technique, you're not even thinking about it so there and then you can start to express yourself. Um, and so with Inescu, I think that he, he is still a virtuoso in that performance because of what he can do with his right hand and because of his architecture, the way he thinks about music and the fact that emotionally he's absolutely got us in the palm of his hand even more so than ever now i mean the base level for what is technically possible in terms of speed i mean every tom dick and sally at conservatoires around the world can play the last rose of summer now it's it's got to be about more than that and when you look at the people who are really really famed these days for their marvelous technique i mean take take pinkas zuckerman it's it's again it's the right arm that's the thing i did an interview with him once for the strad and my gosh if you could see the way that man could hold a fork he gave me and we had this wonderful three hour it is magic it is literally magic to behold we had this three hour interview and we got onto the subject of technique and and we talked about the whole the bow arm the, the bow arm thing and 
And it's a subject that I care particularly about because really I was scuppered in the first year of playing my violin by having a teacher who wasn't very good. I'm from this sleepy little seaside town in Somerset. You know, my, my parents did the best that they could getting me the violin teacher that they did. But, but you know, right from the beginning, I, I had technical problems sewn into my technique and it was very very hard to undo them later on and it was all in the right hand um, and so I got onto this subject with him and um, just the way he could balance that fork I mean it was dancing on air in his hand and and that is what it is all about and that is why when you hear next time you go and hear Pinker Zuckerman look at the right hand not the left hand and, and that's where you'll see the virtuosity going on. You mentioned there that George Inescu was very closely associated with folk music. What influence do folk violinists have on classical ones? Oh, loads, loads. I mean, it's all it's all part of the it's all the big melting pot, isn't it? You know, in the same way that composers over the years have been inspired by folk music, so have violinists. I mean, we've got Inescu. I mean, if you look these days, one of the rising stars, um, I would say now internationally, um, the young Kentucky violinist Tessa Lark, and she's made um, bluegrass a bit of a, a thing, particularly for her encore. She was at the Wigmore um, last weekend. And she, yeah, she'll she'll play her bark and her telemann or her ravel, and and then she'll do a bit of bluegrass to finish. And uh, I love all that. I think it just all adds to the richness. Mark Bushkoff is another one. He took part in the Tchaikovsky violin competition a few years back, and he did this absolutely wicked cadenza in the Tchaikovsky violin concerto. You know, on the stage in the Marinsky Theatre, and he brought I, I think it was Romanian folk himself actually um, into the Tchaikovsky violin concerto. Um, it was wonderful. So, so yes, folk is in, influencing people even today. And I would say especially young artists are becoming more and more confident about bringing that layer of things into a classical performance. Well, Inescu's recording in 1949 was one of the first of Bach's sonatas and partitas. But a new recording by the Italian Fabio Biondi on Naive is the latest. And by contrast, I found Biondi's performance to have a warmth and refined quality to it. Charlotte, what aspects of a violinist's sound are due to their instrument? Here, 1766 Gennaro Gagliano violin, and what are due to their playing? Oh, gosh, where to start? Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously, that, that Gagliano, I mean, it is a beautiful instrument, and it, and it does inform his sound. In that it's a fairly small instrument. Um, it's one that he's had for about a decade now. It belongs to his teacher. He loves it. And, and I'm quite sure, actually, the fact that it loves it and it connects him to his teacher 
also has a huge part. But the really interesting thing also about Fabio Biondi and this recording, I'm, I interviewed him when he brought out his Telemann solo sonatas. And this was the first time that he had recorded on the Galliano with gut strings, original gut strings. Now, the gut strings that period performers use these days, they are made of a sort of EU-compliant mutton gut. Now, before the Second World War, the gut strings that were being used by um, instrumentalists, they were made of young lamb, um, sheep, young lamb, they're much younger, and they didn't have the same chemical process that is used these days. So the gut strings before the Second World War were an entirely different kettle of fish to the ones that we used now, which throws up all sorts of questions. And, you know, is any historically informed performance on the right stuff really? I mean, we're not using the same kit as they were 200 years ago, even with the Baroque strings. But to get back to Fabio Biondi, over the years, he has amassed um, by going into old little shops and looking online, this incredible collection of antique gut strings and he keeps them on oiled paper and um, gut strings anyway are terrible for tuning so um, they're not something that he can use in performances but when it comes down to a recording of solo baroque music out these antique gut strings come and if you listen to the sound I mean there is there is a different quality um, it's very hard to put your finger on exactly what but I, I would just say there is there is a greater range of colour perhaps a greater softness. Um, and so there are, that is definitely a part of it, without question. Now, in terms of the rest of the sound, I mean, your general question about how much of a sound is down to instrument and how much is down to performer, um, I think it's both. I, I really think it's both. I, I, I think that certainly there are instruments that we would know if we heard them on the moon, they're just so distinctive. I mean, like that well, Goffrey played. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. But I mean, you look at, I'm sorry, I digress for a second to talk about cellos, but the Goffrey played by um, Gautier Capison, that sound, I mean, it's a monster, it's a beast. And you, I, I, would, I think I would know it um, <laughs> if, I, if I heard it, just because it is so very distinctive. Um, so there is that. But I mean, the other really interesting thing about Biondi's performances on this, I mean, so much ultimately is down to the player and the decisions that they make. And the interesting thing about this bark is that it's, it is very different, actually, to what else is out there. It's it's period performance in a sense that it's got the gut strings and there's a lot of air in the sound, much more than you have in the UNESCO recording. But that hasn't been the thing on topmost of his mind. He's He's got the sort of HIP, um, historically informed performance equipment. And then he's just got on with interpreting Bach, thinking about how Bach's part writing should be, um, how he wants to voice it, thinking about his ornamentations. Um, and it's a very, very different recording, I would say, to the other period, in inverted commas, recordings out there. Um, because he's he's really thought about how he wants to express Spark's voice. I mean, little things like um, there's a if 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 listeners afterwards want to go to um, between four forty two and six thirty two of the Chicana, it's basically there are loads and loads of arpeggios at this point, and it is so different to anything else I have heard from anybody else. Um, he's got a very fluid approach to tempo. Um, his approach to the arpeggios really varies as well. There, there are um, 
embellishments in there. It actually sounds as though he's playing different notes at points. And it's beautiful. It's um, he, He's thinking about how he voices the bottom line. Um, and it's very, very different. Now, um, he, he could change instrument and that would still be Fabio Biondi and nobody else. Yeah, it's a recording that challenges some assumptions that people might have about uh, period Baroque violin playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, from one of the kings of period Baroque. So he's, <laughs> he's sitting high and dry. Well done him. <laughs> well, Biondi, for me, has been previously associated with Vivaldi and the Italian Baroque. Are there still national schools of violin playing? Yeah, well, less so than before. Um, I, I think that is universally acknowledged to be the case. Um, but I think also that you can still hear it in the Russian school and the former Soviet states where those teachers are still doing their thing. There was an orchestra set up um, a couple of years ago, just before COVID, the Britain Shostakovich Orchestra, which put together conservatoire students from um, Russia and the UK. And the sound was very, very different. It was noticeably a very rich... I mean, the, the, the Russian school, it's huge on technique. Their, their technique is absolutely flawless. At conservatoire level, they're also taught to all play like soloists, which makes for a very bold sound. And of, and, and of course, you know, they learn later on, but it was interesting. Um, the Tsenandali Festival started a couple of years ago and what the... Um, Claudio Vandelli was running the auditions for that. And of course, it's all from the, the Pan-Concasian Youth Orchestra. It's all that area of post-Soviet states where the playing is just like that and he said that one of the major things getting these young people to play in orchestras um, it play in the play in the Pan-Caucasian Youth Orchestra was actually getting them to play like an orchestral musician they they, they sound incredible um, but it's getting them to play not like a soloist and so I think that's a really interesting thing about the Russian school and and I should say that by the time they get up to the professional level and they're playing in orchestras of course they're playing like orchestral players but but the training until that point is I would say markedly different to in the UK where we have um, French musicians in the past have told me that the UK in particular has a real emphasis on orchestral playing it makes it very much and Germany as well is very much as important and as viable a career as being a soloist pragmatic so approach isn't that, it absolutely but I would say therefore that there is a difference in attitude to different schools these days as well not necessarily just the sound but the weight attached to being an orchestral musician in London as opposed to Paris for example well, if obscurity was a problem for Bach's violin music, then that certainly wasn't a problem for Mozart, who dazzled with his virtuosity both as a pianist and a violinist in his youth. And all of five of his violin concertos are from the relatively early stages of his career. Here's the third in the recording that was for many years the reference, Arthur Grumio with the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir Colin Davis.
Grumio's elegant Mozart is for me the epitome of good taste in violin playing. But do these recordings nowadays sound dated, not because of the recording quality necessarily, but because our view of Mozart and the music of the classical era in general has changed dramatically since the 1960s? Oh, well, does good playing ever go out of fashion? <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say not. I mean, you've hit it there, haven't you? I mean, it's, it's elegant Mozart. It is the epitome of good taste. And, and good playing never falls out of fashion. And I don't think that integrity in believing in what you play, communicating through your music, has ever gone out of fashion either. So Grumio, yes, he, he's not playing like a historically informed expert. Um, there's a modern setup, there's um, plenty of vibrato. But I would say that there's arguably less difference. I mean, we'll talk about Isabel Faust in a moment, but there's sure there's difference between Grumio and Faust, but I would say that there's less difference between unashamedly modern players of today, such as Pinkard Zuckerman or Rono Capuçon. And and of course, Grumio, he's also, he's still got the Mozartian lightness. He's, he's hitting the musical style in that way. Um, it's funny, I think if anything, it's the central movement of that recording that sounds possibly the most dated. I mean, it's so romantic, so vibratoed, and, and also just the way it's recorded because the orchestra are quite far back in the balance, aren't they? But I think it's rather lovely from him and the orchestra. I mean, it has this kind of, to me, this sepia-toned golden age Hollywood quality about it. You know, it's the same sort of style that John Wilson is now trying to bring back, you know, with the portamenti and that very polished playing that's now part of the sort of the period performance movement is now coming into early 20th century orchestral music. And here it is in its original form um, with Mozart and, and Grumio. I mean, it's just sublime. And, you know, his first movement, Cadenza, in that recording. I mean, again, you know, that's never going to go out of fashion. I mean, that tone. <laughs> I was, there is no one the good playing really never does go out of fashion like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just sublime. So, <laughs> there, no, it's not out it's of fashion. Great. It's still great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you mentioned there vibrato. Why is vibrato such a controversial and much discussed issue with regards to both performances of period style and of older style? Ah, well, good question. I mean, it's it's just one of the tools of expression, isn't it? It's silly to go too maniacal one way or the other and put down hard and fast rules. I think it's a tool that is being used to increasingly wonderful effect these days, probably as a result of period performance that means now that people are a lot freer and of course because people are now used to not using as much vibrato or using no vibrato as they play their their Bach or their Telemann it means that they're doing really interesting things with it in other ways. I mean, you've got, for example, Quatio e Ben don't use vibrato when they're doing a Beatles cover. If you listen to their Come Together, the Beatles, that really direct sound that they're getting, look like they, this video of them playing it online, there's no vibrato. That's how they get that brilliant sound. And, you know, would they, I mean, maybe they're such geniuses, probably they would have worked it out without the period performance thing. But but still, I mean, I was at a concert at the Highgate International Chamber Music Festival on Saturday and a quartet played Shostakovich String Quartet Number no. 11. And the power of that work was that there was very little vibrato 
all the way through, it was very somber, sort of almost numb. Um, the pain was a numbness. But then every now and then they wanted a really human, keening voice to sing out. And that's when the vibrato went into overdrive, this you know, rich vibrato song. And, and my gosh, the power of that vibrato in the context of much less vibrato in the overall performance, it was really, really strong. So, so yeah, people can get hot under the collar about vibrato or not vibrato and how much you could use, you should use with Beethoven versus Brahms. Even if you look at, you know, go back to Inescu and Bach, uh, he used vibrato. So who am I to say in that case that you shouldn't use vibrato with bark? It's a tool that needs to be used intelligently. Not never yeah. always off or always on, but used uh, as an appropriate tool in the right moments. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And within that, obviously, there are points at which you really want a good period sound. I mean, I think that one of the wonderful things that the period performance world has done is bring just a, a greater range of possibilities to the sound world and vibrato is one of them let's explore that sound world now with isabella faust mozart with the baroque ensemble il giardino armonico under giovanni antonini changes has the period instrument practice brought to the world of violin playing and is the change in approach to violin playing and strings generally the most crucial aspect of the historically informed performance movement no <laughs> no do you know it's really interesting I mean, yes the gut strings they is very very interesting but as important or arguably maybe even more important is the bows actually isabel faust has um a huge array of bows she's got a, a library of bows which she uses for various different composers and i mean it's a major thing you know when you're playing bach when you're playing mozart to suddenly have a shorter bow a more springy bow maggie faultless margaret faultless of the orchestra of the age of enlightenment she's also head of historical performance at the royal academy of music she gets drafted in increasingly often these days to symphony orchestras to help them produce a, a period sound that wonderful sound you're hearing from the oae on this recording and it's actually she because the strings are quite a hard thing actually to get your fingers around and to adapt to particularly if you've got a very short amount of time as an orchestra to have a workshop it's actually bows that she suggests the orchestras switch to first instantly that changes the sound it changes the possibilities of bowing suddenly the bowings that you had with your long modern bow that don't make sense anymore uh, you're, you're far more nimble um, you've got far more bounce and of course that's what you're hearing on this recording you know as well as, as the gut strings as well as this wonderful period pop of the brass and woodwind so no it, it's a whole range of things but I would argue that perhaps bows are even more important than 
gut strings in in terms of the because that's you know the articulation the area articulation the the greater bounce that that's coming from the bow it's not coming from the strings for many the greatest violin concerto of them all is beethoven's violin concerto and it has of course been performed by all the world's greatest violinists and perhaps none were greater in the 20th century than our two next performances yasha heifetz born in lithuania but raised in the u.s and david oistrach perhaps the supreme product of soviet pedagogy First up, here's Yasha Heifetz with the NBC Symphony Orchestra under Arturo Toscanini. Anointed God's fiddler, Heifetz is probably still unrivaled in the 20th century in terms of sheer virtuosity. The son of a concert master, Heifetz was playing before the age of two. Charlotte, are great violinists born or made? Nah. Well, first of all, do you know, just, just to say, I'm really glad you went for the Toscanini rather than the Munch. Um, it, it's the better one. And and I guess that leads then on to, you know, born, not made. I mean, it's both, isn't it? I mean, it's a little bit of both. You can want to be the greatest violinist in the world, but frankly, if, if it's not in your genetic makeup, you know, you even if you practice, you know, the 10,000 hours and you obtain the technique, if it never... If you never get that connection between what your fingers are doing and where your heart is, if you don't have that something to say and the ability and the desire to express it and and to make yourself essentially um, emotionally naked on stage. I mean, it, it only ever works if you're able to just bear your soul to an audience full of strangers. And, and some people have that and some people don't. So within that, there there needs to be some work as well. But, you know, it, it's interesting. I and mean, one of the things that I've noticed, um, particularly with with the period performance movement, is the number of younger generation soloists rising names whose parents are also musicians um, and who having you know, Thomas Dunford picked up his lute, you know, at the age of four or something. Um, look at um, Teotim Longwada Swat, um, who I've just interviewed for the Strad, incredible rising violinist and protege of um, William Christie. He first started Baroque violin at nine um, because he's just from a, a musical family and that was just the, that was the wallpaper to him growing up. So yeah, nature and nurture. But I've sat in so many competitions, so many international violin competitions and just been bored out of my wits and thinking, you know, this is a day of my life I'm never going to get back. Because, you know, the, these people, they, they've got the technique, but there's, there's literally that's there's all they've got. You need to have the artistry with it. Was Heifetz and his lean sound perhaps a bit of a harbinger of things to come in the long run, a greater influence than Oistrakh, I think, with regards to people like Perlman, etc.? No, I, I think he was a one-off. 
it's it's funny with violinists i i think that there are very few violinists in time who have who are genuinely i mean musicians full stop and string players who are genuinely recognizable from their sound not by their interpretation of a particular work and Heifetz is one of those and and i i i think he was a one off and and i think it would be futile and stupid to even try to attempt to imitate him i, I don't think <laughs> that's a fool's game isn't it yeah yeah it's stupid why would you do that um, i don't think that any violinist since him has ever thought oh do you know what i think i'll go down the high fritz route <laughs> i mean you'd be absolutely insane wouldn't you so so no is my answer to that question <laughs> here's of course another great violinist is david oistrak with the french national radio orchestra under andre croutons complimentary figure to Heifetz in so many ways, do you have a preference for Heifetz or Oistrakh in the Beethoven Concerto? And does your choice come down to whether you place greater importance on a violinist's virtuosity or their sonority? Neither. <laughs> it has... <laughs> I attach greatest importance to sensibility and sound. So with Oistrakh, I mean, it is, I mean, it's just that particular recording. It was his favourite recording of the many that he did, and quite right, because it is wonderful. And, I mean, particularly his Larghetto, it's just so sweet of tone, so poised, so singing. How on earth could anybody prefer Heifetz over that? Only I do. To me, Heifetz is... People talk about his, it's been said too much, I know, but the aristocratic quality, the aloofness. Um, and that just has it for me. And just that that white heat of his sound. I know I'm spewing out things that have been said a gazillion times before, like there's no tomorrow. But I mean, they are what it is. And and I think there is something about Heifetz is the fact that there is this aristocratic and this piercing sound, but the aloofness is only surface level. I think that's what it is that gets me. It, it's a, it's about being... I, I, I feel swept off my feet every single time I listen to it. There's this aloofness, and you just sense this kind of smouldering rocket going on underneath the surface, and it just gets me every single time. Um, and, and for that, I, I, will, I will take that and that sheer atten- intensity of sound over Oistrakh's sweetness, his gorgeousness of tone any day. And it's clearly a personality thing as well, because if I look at the instrumentalists that I really love, I mean, the other, um, the cellist I love uh, is Rostropovich, who again had that very direct sound 
and that virtuoso and, and just the sheer unbridled passion. And, and again, you know, who's the cellist who I possibly love more and more than anybody else today? It's um, Gautier Capuçon, who has that same as Rostropovich, that piercing, very direct sound. Uh, so it's clearly a personality thing as much as anything else. That's just what I go for. This is why I mean, the people talking about, you know, which is the greatest Beethoven recording of all time and you know was it hybrids was it oyster people are probably throwing themselves um throwing things at their stereos right now going what about Huberman what about Huberman but you know the thing and Huberman he's marvelous as well um I I would have been you know torn if I were picking Beethoven you know Huberman is just his sense of freedom and abandon and he's like a wild child in in that concerto in points um but it's personality the, um, this is the richness of the recordings world, isn't it? And and also the reason why, I mean, I know there is an extent to which it's very, very boring to record yet another Beethoven violin concerto, but it's why I'm still interested when people do. I mean, sure, program it interestingly. Um, don't just stick it with another war horse on a disc, you know, don't put it with a Mendelssohn. That's everybody did for the first 40 years. Um but I exaggerate to make a point. Um, but it's interesting hearing what different personalities do with the same work. And, and of course, that's that's the beauty of classical music. There are some uh, technical demands that Oystrak, especially when I think with regards to the Shostakovich concerto, that Oystrak, I think, required that Shostakovich made easier. Is there a sense that perhaps Oystrak figure wouldn't be held in such high esteem nowadays, lacking that perhaps extreme technical ability? I think it depends what else you bring to the table. I had a really interesting conversation with, I won't name names, but a regular judge who does a lot of international music competitions. And we were both agreeing how one violinist basically deserved to win a competition, even though that violinist wasn't necessarily my favourite, wasn't the most interesting artist from my perspective. Or the one, you know, I, I personality again, I, I naturally cleave to. Um and they said a really interesting thing is that you don't have to have all of the boxes. You just have to tick. So you need to be able to do a certain thing. If you've got this, then maybe you don't need that. If you've got that, then maybe you don't need this. Now, I think that technique, there are extents to which you have to be at a certain level. I've just reviewed and um, it's some some get through anyway. I've just <laughs> reviewed an absolutely appalling um, disc. I, I'm not going to be nasty and say who it was. Coming to the Strad sometime soon, though. <laughs> where they just couldn't play the piece. Uh, they started with a really, really difficult piece and they couldn't get their fingers around it. And, you know, no clearly no amount of editing was going to solve the problem. And so clearly, you know, you can't pick that piece and then not record it properly. There is a certain level, and I think these days, as I've said, the base level for virtuosity, for technique, is at such a high level, then there's effectively no excuse. So I, I think we wouldn't be in the problem that Oystrak has. And of course, he was in a very different world where violin technique was still being developed and grown. I mean, we we hadn't at this point had Berio's sequences. Uh, we hadn't heard um, Sharino. I mean, all these incredible extended techniques for the violin were actually still to come in his day. I and mean, in the same way that most violinists of Bach's day 
or Vivaldi's day, their technique, again, it just wasn't developed enough to handle most of the things. I mean, there's a reason why Brahms's violin concerto was deemed unplayable by so many people and Barber's violin concerto was deemed unplayable when they were first penned. It was because they were ahead of where violin technique was at that time. So I think essentially we're not going to be in that situation today because the baseline for violin technique has risen again. Is there a fundamental limit in terms of technique? I mean, where can violin playing go in terms of technique? Well, I guess nobody's played the Paganini 24th on an upside-down violin yet, have they? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's always... There's always something else, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, it's the joy, isn't it? We, yeah. we see what's going to come next. Or, you know, you look at Anne-Sophie Mutter talking about the second violin sonata written for her by Penderecki. And she looked at it and said, it's unplayable. <laughs> it, it's actually unplayable. <laughs> but she said, you know, Penderecki wrote it for her knowing that she was, you know, an absolute, if anybody could take a technical challenge, it was Anne-Sophie Mutter. And he stretched her and blow us down. She got her fingers around it. So never say never. It's up to the composers, isn't it, to push that each time. Yes, and in fact, that's what one of Mutter's points. You compose it, I'll play it. It's not for the violinist to instantly say, oh, it's unplayable. You've got to have a jolly good go first. And I like that I like that approach. I mean, sometimes things are genuinely unplayable. I was once at a competition and the, the composer in residence, the poor man, he'd given, he'd composed his... Um, competition commission and it was only when he landed in situ that he realized that actually this whole middle section it was actually unplayable (laughs) um, by by a young artist anyway so he had to just say to everybody as they turned up for their session with him just scrap the middle six pages (laughs) the poor man he, he he looked desperate about the whole thing i mean it was still a great piece but you know the middle six pages were actually unplayable Well, our final pairing takes us all the way back to 1909, when the much-beloved Mendelssohn Concerto was a mere 64 years old, and recorded, well, just the finale with piano accompaniment, by the American violinist Maud Powell, although perhaps a bit forgotten these days, gave the national premieres of the Tchaikovsky and Sibelius Concertos. The pianist here is George Falkenstein. Charlotte, is it fair to say that violins had much more room for interpretive freedom in the past than they do now? Has the impact of recording, and perhaps a more standardised way people learn the instrument now, given credence to that old chestnut that all violinists now, they all sound the same? Well, do you know what? I think it is a bit of an old chestnut. (laughs) I, I think that what people 
always forget when they bang on about this one is that, yes, Maud Pal was not playing with a wall like I've, the one I've got behind me of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of CDs, you know, given. She didn't have that. But she also had the score in front of her. And I think that people tend to forget there, there is only a certain margin for personal expression within the bounds of respect to a score. And at the end of the day, Mendelssohn was very particular about his tempi, about how you were to take the transitions, about, you know, composers through the ages, they've stipulated what they want. And are you really going to say, I've got all the freedom in the world to perform this, you know, screw what the composer said, there are no other recordings, so I can do what I like. I mean, it's just, it's a nonsense. So, so yes, I there are, you know, schools of violin playing, perhaps that has shrunk a little bit, as we've discussed already, but they still exist a little bit. But I, I think that although there was a lot of variety, I would say that these days there is also a lot of variety in how violinists attack the Mendelssohn Concerto bringing their personality to the score without being disrespectful to the score. Having said that, Maud Powell, I mean, she is fascinating. She's a fascinating figure anyway to me. I mean, this is American violinist who went and studied in Berlin with Joachim um, back when it was very difficult to travel from the States to Europe. One of the very first artists to embrace recording technology. I mean, she, this 1904 recording with a Victor Talking Machine Company. I mean, she was a trailblazer. And the other really interesting thing about Powell is just the sheer breadth of what she recorded. I mean, there's everything from you know her own arrangements of Ombre Mafou by Handel through to this Mendelssohn. She had very wide, eclectic musical tastes herself and was also thinking about what her audience wanted to hear. I would love to know what she would be doing today. You know, Would she be going down the contemporary route? Would she be going down the crossover route? Would I be feeling a bit sniffy about <laughs> what she was putting out today? thinking that you know, she was selling herself out. Really interesting. And this particular recording of the Mendelssohn, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, boy, that woman had pizzazz, didn't she? I mean, she she takes the tempo at quite a lick, these deliciously light opening flicks, really off the string. Far more fluid approach to rhythm and metre than often we're hearing today. I mean, not entirely. I mean, if you take someone like Patricia Kopitinskaya, um, you know, she she also, she, she's very fluid with that sort of thing. You get these wonderful swooping portamenti, very of the period, but very elegantly dispatched here. And just the ease of her technique. I mean, she is flying, gliding across that violin. It's a supersonic performance. I would have loved to have heard her live with orchestra. Is there a dominant method of teaching violin now that causes this alleged homogeneity amongst players? No, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think the dominant way of teaching now is just to play well. And technique, I mean, maybe I'm saying wrong things here, but yes, people are listening to a whole lot of recordings. So there are accepted ways to perform. But even then, I would say that in the same way as, as a critic... When I can't see the wood for the trees, if, say, I'm if I'm reviewing, I don't know, Paganini Caprices or Bach Sonatas, and I, I can't work out what the differences are or whether I think this is a good 
recording or the, the Ko- Kodai um, I think Kodai cello sonata a couple of weeks ago was where I just went okay I need to get the score out here I, I think that in the same way that, that what I don't know what to do I go back to the score musicians going back to the score will always find their own way of interpreting the piece of music and people have t- spoken to me about the whole not playing what they think the piece is supposed to sound like based on all the previous recordings, but playing the piece based on what are the notes written on the page. And I think that the artists who go back and do that, and there are plenty of people doing that at conservatoire level too, then with that you don't get homogeneity homogeny of sound. Is the large amount of recordings now a blessing or a curse? Oh, I think it's a blessing. Completely, because I think that we've got everything on the table I mean, how wonderful to have this connection to the past. Um, just to, I mean, music connects us to the past anyway. You know, it it reminds us that the emotions that we are thinking and feeling today are the same ones that were being thought and felt by people in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And, and what the recording world does is bring us closer at least to the to the past 100 years that we have of that lineage of emotion and why would you not want that and you know and, and it's fascinating too isn't it just to hear what people have done over the centuries and decades even though we won't necessarily agree with everything that's been done and you know even if it gives us the the point to argue with as we go off and then do our thing or wave the score proudly over our heads and go well they mocked that up <laughs> didn't they that was completely disrespectful to the composer um but you know, it's just it's just added to the richness of the musical tapestry these days. Um, yeah, we're, we're very lucky to have what we have. And I'd say this is why I'm happy for artists to keep adding to it in whatever way they fancy. It's why I don't sigh when another Beethoven recording or another Tchaikovsky recording pops up. I just go, hooray, I wonder <laughs> what they've done. Oh, and oh, that's interesting what they've put alongside it. Um, so many things. And of course, the, the other ways that artists are expressing themselves more and more today's, um, today is with cadenzas. Violinists taking it upon themselves to write their own cadenzas, provide new ones, whether it's historically performed or something a little bit more out there. I mean, the um, Isabella Faust, of course, that Mozart concertos recording, one of the beauties of it was these wonderful brand new cadenzas penned for them for her by Andrea Steyer, um, which were based on performance practice, based on the fact that Mozart was a keyboardist, first and foremost, at least that's the instrument that he enjoyed playing rather than the violin, which always felt a bit shackled to it, reminded him of being under, under the thumb in Salzburg. But these wonderful cadenzas that play with polyphony and, and double stops in the same, you know, thinking of Mozart the pianist, Again, these these are things that people are bringing to these new recordings now. It's like a never-ending treasure trove of fresh delights. And uh, our trip through the emotional past is brought up to date, well, to 2012 at least, with our final recording. This is Alina Ibrahimova playing the Mendelssohn Concerto. Uh, this is under the orchestra, under the Age of Enlightenment, and conducted by Vladimir Yurovsky.
Now, Ibrahimova is a violinist who sounds equally at home playing Baroque music as she is in the middle of the 20th century and beyond, so her Mendelssohn here is about in the middle of her historical range. Is the biggest challenge for violinists now to be able to absorb all these multifaceted influences while retaining a sense of individuality when they're playing? I do hear sometimes, I'd say particularly with the earlier historically informed performance recordings, there was sometimes so much of an emphasis on getting it right, in inverted commas, that um, heart got slightly left by the wayside. Not always, not with everybody, but just every now and then. And, and that still happens a bit now. And I think that what makes Alina such an extraordinary artist is the fact that the period performance is so ingrained, it's so much a part of her language. It's as much part of her technique as a good right hand, a good left arm is, um, that she's able to just be herself. And the thing that you really hear in this Mendelssohn performance, and beyond this, this wonderful relationship that she has with Yurovsky, which of course has just been proved again with their Shostakovich recordings, is she just plays with such fire. I mean, she's so true. You can't argue with what she's playing because it sounds so true. She's not thinking about creating art. She's playing for her life. Um, I heard her in Vorjak's second piano quartet at the weekend. And again, it was just the fire and panache that she brings, but with such class and polish and sweetness with it. And and with this Mendelssohn, you, you have this wonderful... I mean, that first line, the first line of the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, with period performers, it's really easy to make, you know, particularly on gut strings and you know, period violin, to sound, make it sound a bit weedy and thin. And it's how do you make it sound distressed, plaintive, but not weak. And I think she hits it absolutely spot on here. And then over the reading, I mean, it's strong, it's pure, it's clean, romantic. She can deliver the most gorgeous tone, but she's also not afraid to give it some bite. The Andante, I mean, it's lilting, it's radiant, it's so generous. It's just the most beautiful, generous performance of it. Well, you've mentioned there Ibrahimova, but who else do you feel are violinists worth looking out for at the moment, both in the current crop and up-and-comers? Oh, well, yes, I mentioned Teotim Longwarder Swart earlier, and this is one of Harmonia Mundi's um, brand-new styles. Prolific recording already. Um, he's brought out three recordings in the space of the past year, and every single one has been an absolute triumph. A wonderful recording with William Christie, especially. Yeah. Um, really wonderful. And, and next year, he's going to be live recording the Haydn violin concertos with Christie. So that one's coming up. And he's he's a really wonderful violinist and interesting in that he's a Baroque violinist, but he's also attacking the 19th century repertoire. And he had a modern violinist background. He, he studied both. So I said that he started Baroque violin aged nine, but he started modern violin aged four. And he was learning the two of them contemporary. I mean, he told me that the violin he concerto he actually performed the most at the Paris Conservatoire was the Shostakovich. Wow, so he's got really? that going as Goodness. well. Yeah, really. Yeah. Now you wouldn't think it, no. would you, listening <laughs> to him? So no doubt we will hear that side of him at some point in the future as well. Very 
very exciting name. And I mentioned Tessa Lark earlier, again, really interesting violin, again, very individual. And then a couple of really rising names. So Maria Duenas, who the Spanish violinist who won the Menuhin competition last year and has just been announced as a BBC New Generation artist. She's quite something. Um, and really nice for those of us listening in the UK is, of course, given that she's now on the BBC scheme, we'll have an opportunity to hear her live in this country in the coming months, I'm sure. And I'm going to be in the front row or as front as I can get anyway. And then another just to Fenella Humphreys, another British violinist who um, is doing some really interesting things. And in terms of not just putting out what has been done before, which actually none of these artists that I'm talking about um, have done. Fenella, she's um, a serial commissioner of works. Um, she plays with a huge amount of of passion, of conviction. She's got the technique as well. She's she's marvellous. Um, her recording of the Sibelius Concerto recently on Rubicon is very fine. Um, I disclaimer, I wrote the notes to that, <laughs> but I wouldn't have said yes had I not heard her live playing it and thought, wow, she's fantastic. So no vested interest in saying that. Um, she is genuinely wonderful. And then another one that I'm... Um, there are a couple who I'm watching very closely who are just coming up through the ranks. First is another violin, a British violinist, Louisa Staples, who, um, very interesting, she's currently studying in Germany, and she has a wonderful soul, she has a wonderful poised serenity and soulfulness to her playing. She is really, um, she could play the phone book at points <laughs> and, and I would listen. And then another one, um, a Russian uh, again, similarly young. Um, he has brought out a first album now, Dmitry Smirnov. Um, he has a whole load of personality, um, a really fun side to him, very creative. And and again, he's he's an exciting young performer. So those are the two, um, Louisa and Dmitry, who I'm watching with a great deal of interest at the moment, seeing what the next few years will bring. Well, aside from keeping tabs on those young violinists, what else will you be working on in the next few months, Charlotte? Oh, well, um, the usual mix. I mean, the thing of mine that's just come out, which I've been working very hard on for months, is a series of podcasts at the Adam Mickiewicz Institute in Warsaw on Penderecki. Um, I've been presenting five, about half hour, maybe slightly more podcasts, each on a different work by Penderecki. So I've done those. And then... The usual blend of the Strad and Gramophone. I've got some nice feature interviews. Um, there's the cover feature for February's The Strad is with Teotim Longwalda Swart, which I'm just putting the finishing touches to at the moment. Just interviewed Johan Delen, another wonderful rising young talent, actually. Very much so. yeah. Just interviewed him for Gramophone, so that'll be appearing in print at some point early next year. And yeah program notes and, and frankly just looking forward to a bit of a break over Christmas <laughs> yes, the other thing that I'm really really looking forward to well that's lots to look out for in the new year hopefully we'll have some more Presto podcasts for you as well thanks to my producer Matt Groom and thanks to you for listening mm -hmm.